who when they're around other Christians, those Christians tend to become more like Christ. This passage shows us what those people look like more specifically, but that's the big picture. Growing in Christ and doing other people good with His Word. Our sermon text is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. Our sermon title is Appoint Qualified Elders. Appoint Qualified Elders, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Let your eyes fall on verse 5. Hear the voice of the Lord. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Verse 6, namely, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Verse 8, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Would you join me again in prayer when I ask for God to help us to worship Him through this text. Lord, we bow before You now in a reading of a passage that as Trey prayed might seem to many of us like it only applies to other people and not to us. Would you show us the light of Christ through this passage so that our own hearts are exposed by the beautiful Christ-like qualities that are contained in this list and make every person desire to embody what we see in this list because the beauty of Jesus is on vivid display here. And all who belong to Him certainly want to be more like Him. So show us Christ. Draw us all to Christ. And as was prayed in our open prayer time, would you raise up more young men in this church who are what this passage describes. In fact, we boldly ask you to raise up more men in this church than need to serve here so that we can send them elsewhere to serve other churches for their good and for your glory. Keep doing that. Make us fertile soil for Christ-like men. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So two things in this passage. Verse 5, verses 6 through 9. Verse 5, Jesus' churches need pastors. Verse 5, Jesus' churches need pastors. Verses 6 through 9, churches' pastors need Jesus. So Jesus' churches need pastors, and churches' pastors need Jesus. That's my outline, verses 5 through 9. First, verse 5, Jesus' churches need pastors. Let's reread verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, there is a lot 
of important material. You may not think it's super important. You wouldn't be in this room unless a bunch of other churches for the last 2,000 years obeyed it. And beyond us, our and other faithful churches' obedience will preserve and propagate the gospel down through the ages provided God gives churches in our generation to remain faithful. There's a lot of important material just in verse 5 for churches to do two things with. To see it and to apply it. That is, believe it and obey it. Let me draw your attention to two things in verse 5 under our first point. Our first point is Jesus' churches need pastors. The two sub-points are churches need order and churches need elders. I think you can see it there. The first is churches need order. For this reason, I left you in Crete. Why? That you would set in order what remains. So the churches needed to be ordered. That's just structure, organization. But it's not by human logic. You know, we say it a lot here, so it kind of becomes white noise. And I've confessed as many times as I know how. And I'm about to confess it again. I don't know how to say stuff different. I wish I did. I'm just like a record on repeat. And I've even prayed, Lord, give me new ways of saying old truth in a fresh way. But I'm just going to say it the old way. We don't care what you think. Better news. Your pastors don't even care what we think. The question is, what does God think? So when Paul says to Titus, I left you in Crete to set in order what remains, he means organize the churches. But it's not according to Titus's preferences. Paul doesn't even care what Titus thinks. Paul doesn't even care what Paul thinks. Paul cares what God thinks. And do you know there's 13 letters in the New Testament written to local churches just like this one? And the preponderance of the material in all 13 of those letters, if you put it on one side of the scale, and all the other material in those letters on another side of the scale, the weight of what God thinks churches should do based on what they believe and how they should act so far outweighs all the other material like greetings and um, various dispute resolution under the light of the gospel matters, which is actually part of the order of the church. Set in order what remains is Paul saying to Titus, hey, in all those churches on the island of Crete that are brand new, they don't have any organization. They believe the gospel. They're meeting regularly for worship. And it's pretty haphazard right now. It's kind of disheveled and disorganized, but praise God, Jesus is alive. Jesus is in their lives. They love Jesus. So what do people who love Jesus do? They meet regularly to worship Jesus. They need some order. You know, unordered churches are actually an anti-witness to Jesus. Not on purpose, but accidentally, churches can tell lies about Jesus by the way we are ordered or disordered. There's nothing virtuous in God's sight about chaos in a church's underlying structure or polity, their organization. God certainly does not smile on more spontaneous worship in a church's Sunday gathering. 
Nor does he smile more necessarily on a church organizing themselves in this very high church, liturgical, well-ordered expression. The question for worship gatherings is not, is that church traditional or contemporary? Oh, I don't like traditional churches. I want a contemporary church. That's not the core question. The question is also not, is the gathering more spontaneous or more very well and meticulously planned? The question is not, is it high church or low church? Is it refined or free in our expression? The question is not, does it feel good? It's not, does it meet my preference? Now, I don't know if any of you, several years ago, were really looking for a church that had, let's see, you know, the kind of church I'm looking for, I want to know, do they meet in an elementary school cafeteria? That's really what I'm looking for. Right? Nobody's looking for that. And I'm so glad you don't care. Also, we're not looking for a future space together that's super opulent. We don't care. The point is not the place. The point is also not, is it haphazard? Or is it fitting my kind of surfacey spiritual subjective preferences? The question is, does the church's order accord with Scripture? It is not in any way an indication of the work of the Holy Spirit among a gathering of worshipers if their worship is totally spontaneous. Oh, the Spirit was really there today. We just went off the rails and did stuff we didn't plan. Do you know that oftentimes going off the rails and doing stuff that, not is, that is not planned and attributing, attributing it to the Holy Spirit is nothing more than a lack of preparation and planning and seeking God's face? Sometimes the very tight box that we pre-plan could also be a symptom of not trusting the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says order in all the churches, in all the cities, on the island of Crete is one of the reasons I left you there, what he means is a biblical polity, a biblical structure to the church. This is actually one of many passages that help us to see that if you want to measure the Spirit of God filling a church, don't look to her spontaneity and don't look to her scriptedness. Rather, look to when she gathers, does she care very deeply that God the Holy Spirit wrote a big book and we're seeking to bring our life under submission to that book. That's one of the reasons Paul left Titus on the island of Crete is so that those True churches who knew and loved Jesus could have biblical structure. It's another way to say, Paul doesn't really care what those churches think. And Paul doesn't really care what Titus thinks those churches should do. Paul and Titus need to care what God thinks those churches should do. That's why verse 5 says, set in order what remains. So the first thing under our first point, Jesus' churches need pastors, is that churches need order. And the order comes... From the B-I-B-L-E. That's what setting them straight or putting in order what remains means. What does the Bible teach? A biblical polity, order, 
can be stated in a fourfold relationship. Far as I'm aware, the four little points I'm just going to say and not even unpack are what the Bible teaches the order of a church is. Number one, Jesus is the head of every church. Number two, elders are to serve churches by leading, especially in doctrinal faithfulness. Doctrinal faithfulness. So Christ is the head. Elders serve by leading in doctrinal faithfulness. Deacons, number three, lead by serving in Christ-like humility, ministry among and beyond the flock. So Christ is the head. Elders serve by leading. Deacons lead by serving. And fourth, the big substructure that Christ puts in place, the whole congregation is to protect, proclaim, and portray, Lord's Supper and Baptism, the gospel of Jesus in our life together. God holds the whole church responsible. Thirteen letters written to churches in the New Testament, I said. Most of them are not written to their pastors. They're written to the whole people. The church at Corinth, the church in Colossae, the church in Ephesus, so forth. You all are responsible to protect, to proclaim, and to portray the gospel of Jesus. That's a biblical polity. Christ is head. Elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving, and the whole congregation seeks the face of Jesus and honors Him according to His Word, proclaiming, protecting, and portraying the truth of the Gospel. So our first sub-point is churches need order. Our second sub-point under number one, Jesus' churches need pastors, is not only do they need order, churches also need elders. You can see it in verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete. Number one, that you would set in order what remains. Number two, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. There's a tremendous amount of important syllabification in that phrase. Don't you agree? Jordan, what word did you just say? Syllabification. There's your other, Derek gave us a good word this morning in grow, in diatus. I'm giving you another good word here, syllabification. It's not a very theological word, it's just a way to break down language word. Syllables, strung together, purposefully, by God, so that we would think what God thinks. I purposefully use that big word just to try to get somebody's attention that may not have been paying attention. I don't care if you know that word, I do care that we all pay attention to the words of the final phrase of verse 5. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. I made a mistake in last week's sermon twice. It's not the first time I've made more than one mistake in many of my sermons. But what I said last week two times with great emphasis is that Paul wrote this letter from prison. No, he did not. He even tells Titus to come visit him in another place where he's writing from, which is not prison. The traditional understanding of when Titus and where Titus was written from is that it was written probably between the time of Paul's first and second imprisonments in Rome, Acts 28. In this case, Titus was probably written in the mid-60s, around the same time as 1 Timothy. But more to the point, churches need pastors. Not only order, 
our our verse is focusing not on when Paul wrote it, not on from where he wrote the letter. But it does tell us that at one time, Paul with Titus brought the gospel, not only to the island of Crete, but to more than one city on that island. Do you see it? I left you there. I left you there. I left you there. I was with you there. And when I left, I told you to stay. So Paul was there. That doesn't fit into the narrative of the book of Acts. We don't know exactly when Paul went to Crete with Titus. We just know that he went there. And there's plenty of room in the missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts to see that he could have easily gone there, even in route on one of his other journeys. So it's not told to us in Acts when it happened, but we do know from this verse, Paul was there. And when Paul left, Paul said, Titus, you cannot come with me. You stay here. Do two things. Biblical order and biblical pastors in every church. I want you to notice also the syllabification, the syllables, the words, the letters, the plural and the singular. Elders is plural. City is singular. That's why I said Jesus' churches need elders. That's our second sub-point under number one. Elders is plural. City is singular. That, like every other verse in the New Testament that talks about churches and their pastors, singular and plural, this verse, like all of those verses, show us that it is Jesus' intention that each of His churches have more than one pastor. So when we were preaching through 1 Timothy Sunday afternoons, many moons ago, we said any pastor without a pastor is an unbiblical pastor. Pastors need pastors. Because pastors are not first pastors. Pastors are first sheep. Our souls need to be shepherded. I almost stood and prayed in our congregational prayer time a moment ago, but I just held on to it and gave it to the Lord and trusted that other people, which they did, prayed beautiful prayers that I heartily amen. But I almost pray, God, thank you for my pastors. Thank you for the way my soul's been shepherded. I'm embarrassed, honestly, by how slow I grow in my faith. I wish I could grow faster. I asked the guy who discipled me, who died in the year 2000, how can I become more godly now? And he just said, live longer. Like, no, I want it now. And while that's true, I'm embarrassed by how slow I grow in my faith. While that's true, I shudder to think where I would be now if I didn't have the pastors God gave me for the last 17 years of my life. That's how long Grace Church has been in existence and I've been one of the pastors here. God has used those pastors to shepherd my soul in innumerable ways. Pastors need pastors. That's why Paul told Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every city, singular, where there was a church of Jesus. I said this is true of every church in the New Testament. I'm not going to give you all the verses, but I do want to pummel you with a few of them. Acts 14.23 When they had appointed elders in every church, 
they prayed with fasting and commended them to the Lord. Acts 15.6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. Acts 20, that's the church in Jerusalem. Acts 20 verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church, that's the many pastors of the one church in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders, plural, of the church at Ephesus who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. James 5.14, we did it this morning in the pastoral prayer. If anyone among you is sick, call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, and have them pray over them, even anointing them with oil in certain cases. 1 Peter 5.1, I therefore, Peter said, exhort the elders, plural, among you, singular, uh, that's plural also, as your fellow elder, elders, and I'm just one of you. So far, we've seen from verse 5, the basic, big idea. Jesus' churches need pastors. God uses those men... To give a biblical polity, Christ is head, elders, deacons, whole congregation, seeking and implementing the will of God. And there is to be more than one in every church. Plural elders, singular church. Verses 6 through 9 show us not only Jesus' churches need pastors, but churches' pastors need Jesus. The goal is not becoming a pastor. The goal is becoming like Christ. If you want to be a pastor more than you want to be like Jesus, you can't be a pastor. Churches and pastors need Jesus. There's two parts to this section, verses 6 to 9, that I want to show you. Just like two parts to our first section. Verses 6 to 8, then verse 9. Verses 6 to 8, pastors must be above reproach. That's verses 6 to 8. And then in verse 9... Pastors must be under authority. Verses 6 to 9. First, verses 6 to 8. Pastors must be above reproach. Verse 9. Pastors must be under authority. Verses 6 to 8. Pastors must be above reproach. That's the key qualification, and all the other qualifications explain that one. It's in verse 6, it's in verse 7. Above reproach. It's been pointed out by all who have studied this passage that the qualifications for elders are not competencies, things he can do, but character, things that are true of his life. The core question about a prospective pastor, like one we've recommended to be affirmed by this congregation in December, a prospective pastor, or... Her current pastors, Grace Church currently has six elders. We've recommended a seventh elder. The key question about prospective or current pastors is, quote, is this man being shaped more into the image of Christ? Progressively, yes, very slowly, yes, embarrassingly slowly, but continually on a trajectory becoming more like Christ. In that sense, this list that I'm about to very rapid fire through is not something only that pastors should desire. These are Christ-like qualities. All Christians 
male and female, should desire to be more like Christ. In fact, if you're a Christian, you will desire to be more like Christ. One more step toward Jesus is the evidence that you belong to Jesus. If you don't want to become more like Jesus, you're not a Christian. These are Christ-like qualities and all pastors should embrace and be increasing in them. The core qualification, as I I mentioned, is in verse 6 and again in verse 7. That is, he is above reproach. He's not perfect in these qualities. Only Jesus is perfect in these qualities. It's like what Peter said in another list of Christian Christ-like qualities. He said, if these qualities are yours, 1 Peter 1.8, and increasing, then you're not useless or unfruitful. You'll be more useful to God and more fruitful in His service if you're possessing and increasing in these qualities. That's the way this list works as well. The word above reproach, it's the core qualification. One lexicon said, above reproach means this. Cannot be accused of anything wrong or without accusation. That's a tough one. Because we live in the day of false accusation. Guilty till proven innocent rather than innocent till proven guilty. This quality above reproach does not mean that if anyone accuses a pastor of something nefarious, he has to quit immediately until proven innocent. I know that that's not true because, wait for it, Jesus was falsely accused. And he did not defend himself. If guilty till proven innocent is what above reproach means, not accused of anything wrong, that's the lexical meaning of that phrase, then Jesus can't even be our Savior. Jesus had plenty of false accusations hurled at him and he kept silent and did not defend himself. One commentary said, above reproach does not mean that an elder must be perfect. But it may be fairly said that each of these characteristics mark his life. They're the rule, not the exception. If a pastor is accused of some disqualifying sin, Scripture clearly teaches that before you believe it, have you, heard, have you ever heard anything bad about any pastor? Yes. Did you believe it? Do you think it's true? Whether this church or any church. If you do and you have not investigated it thoroughly, you're in sin. The Bible says before you accept an accusation against an elder, that is you believe it, 1 Timothy 5.19, do not do so except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That's so that false accusations don't sink a pastoral ministry of a faithful guy. He might not be faithful. The accusation might be true. But if it's guilty till proven innocent, you can't even follow Jesus because he was falsely accused. In the list of elder qualifications here in Titus and the mirror list in 1 Timothy, they help us to see what above reproach means. That's the big banner qualification 
And the qualities that follow are indicative of what that means. They explicate, they put on display what above reproach looks like. So that even if somebody does hurl false accusations about a pastor, we can see that these attributes mark his life. I think it would help us to look at that core qualification above reproach in two subcategories. So the big point is that churches, pastors need Jesus. The sub point is that pastors must be above reproach. And under that one, we've got two ways of looking at above reproach. A pastor needs Jesus in his home, verse 6. And a pastor needs Jesus in his heart, verses 7 and 8. Verse 6, a pastor needs Jesus in his home. Look at verse 6. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. This is his home. And a pastor needs Jesus there before he pretends to be a good Jesus follower in the church. Does he follow Christ at home? Husband of one wife. Again, we preached on this in the Timothy list. 1 Timothy 3, you can refer to that sermon. But just for rapid fire, above reproach includes husband of one wife, pastor needing Jesus in his home. This cannot mean that the elder must be married. Oh, you're unmarried, you can't be a pastor. Otherwise, all elders must also have more than one child. That's the next qualification, having children, plural, who believe. So if he's married with one child, he's also ineligible if marriage must be a requirement to be an elder. No. This is a matter of sexual purity. It doesn't mean an elder must be married because that would, of course, disqualify the guy who wrote the sentence. Paul wasn't married. And oh, by the way, Paul's Savior, Jesus, wasn't married. So if Jesus can't be an elder of your church, nobody can be an elder. So he doesn't have to be married, but he does have to be unwaveringly faithful in his sexual ethic. Husband of one wife. If married, devoted entirely to one woman. If unmarried, devoted entirely to sexual purity. Second, in his home, Jesus in his home, having children who believe. Boy, has this one not been abused through the years. This is not about saving faith. Most of my kids aren't here today because they went to see one of their friends baptized at a sister church in our city. The last thing any pastor's kids need is for a church putting them in an aquarium, a glass house, to watch them all the time. We all know the terrible stories about PKs. And I intend to quit being a pastor before we add unbiblical weights to my kids. This is not saving faith. Having children who believe. It's not saving faith. It's about a pastor's children being reared within good, biblical, God-honoring parameters of parental guidance and authority. It does not mean a pastor's kids must be Christians. 
If that's the case, you can't even appoint him to be a pastor until his kids are significantly older, old enough for everybody to have solid confidence that they're already in Christ. Or let's say he does have kids that old, and then he gets the surprise. Another child is born. And his 22-year-old has a two-month-old sibling. Does he quit until that kid gets old enough to become a believer? And then he can become a pastor again? That's absurd. It's not saving faith. The question is, can he lovingly, not abusively, manage his children's development? Do you want to know who's not been excellent at that? Yours truly. Have I ever been heavy-handed? Yeah. Harsh? Yeah. Too stifling on how far the parameters can go for you to figure out who God made you to be? Yeah. Do I hate that? Yes. I want to put wings on my kids' backs. I want them to fly and soar in my ceiling to be their floor. I want them to go way further in life and with the Lord than I'll ever be able to go. Pastors have to get under their kids and lift them up and let's propel them out into God's wonderful world in ways that they can grow. But guess what? Guess who else your pastor wants that for? All your kids. So you want that for ours and we want that for yours. And then all of a sudden the church becomes this beautiful playground for people to be themselves in Christ. Do they have room to make mistakes? They should. Did you learn from a few of your own mistakes? I sure hope so. Do they know where and why the parameters of healthy living are drawn in the home of the pastor? Do they know that when they cross those lines that the correction is not out of compliance with the degree of the crime? But when they cross a line that's a good, godly, biblical line, do they know that dad's not aiming at behavior modification? You better act right or people won't think I'm a good pastor. How bad is that? No, it's not behavior modification. Do pastor's kids know that in correction, dad is aiming at their heart, not at their mechanics? We're basically asking, does the gospel that the man says he believes show up in the way he relates to his kids? Do children of the man know that he loves them and therefore they respect him in such a way that their lives indicate that he's worthy of following? I've received a lot of gracious, I think filled with the grace of Jesus, compliments in my day. I'm so thankful. Some of them have bordered on flattery. I'm so thankful for any of the ways I've ever received commendations of God using me in anybody's life. Thank you, Lord. Those are treasures. Oh, they're so helpful. Keep us going. We don't need flattery. Encouragement does help sometimes. The greatest compliment, any dad, I'm not talking about pastors, any dad could get is for his sons to say, I want to be like you when I grow up. Or for his daughters to say, I want to marry a man like you when I grow up. That's what we're talking about. This guy loves Jesus in his home. 
So, he's the husband of one wife, pure sexual ethic, is married, devoted to that one woman. And his kids have a gospel order in their heart because God is bringing it to their life in the home through their dad. Third, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. I think that actually relates to the previous one. That's why I have it in the home. His children are under control and not accused by whom, I think it's his kids, of dissipation or rebellion. Now, obviously others. This is connected to his home life. Does this man live as a drunkard in his home? In the confines of his house, is he addicted to alcohol? If he's not a teetotaler, when his kids grow up and observe his use of alcohol, will they say he didn't use it, he abused it? If that's the case, he can't be a pastor. That's verse 6. The pastor needs Jesus in his home. And I said the other part of it is he needs Jesus in his heart. That's verses 7 and 8. Again, it says he must be above reproach. That's why I'm continuing on in this category of being above reproach. It has these specifics. Verse 7 says God's steward, a biblically qualified pastor, knows that he is put in charge of the care of Christ's bride, God's steward. So if you think God handed you a treasure and said, take care of this until I get back, you would absolutely devote your life to treating that like a treasure and not like trash. This man knows that he's God's steward. He will therefore treat the bride of Christ with the utmost care and attention. At the end of the day, he knows, as verse 7 puts it, the church didn't hire him. God entrusted him with a sacred stewardship to care for the bride of his son. God's steward. So this is in his heart what's happening. Look at verse 7. This is deep in his heart. He's not self-willed. I don't know how your translation puts it, but the New American Standard says a pastor, verse 7, is not self-willed. This is the first of five negatives. Self is no longer at the center of his modus operandi. He used to live for himself, but he died to himself. And every day he dies to self. He lives by the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we sang it in one of our congregational songs earlier in the service. Again, I didn't arrange that. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. Not my will. Yours be done. He's not self-willed. He's bowing to the will of another with great gladness. The Scriptures shape this man's heart. They shape his hands. They shape the message that he heralds. He's not trying to use the church to build up his reputation. How many times... Have we seen, let me, let me be clear, this is super important because I think I could be taken wrongly. It is not necessarily wrong for a pastor to go from a smaller church to a larger church. That's not wrong, necessarily. But how many times have we seen what might appear like guys using churches as a stepping stone to build their resume? That's dirty. That's not good. This man is not self-willed. He's not using God's people for selfish gain. He's glad to serve Jesus and the people. On the contrary, how rare is it from a guy to go from a mega big church to a tiny little rural church? Almost never. Why? Does Jesus always call people this way and never call people that way? That's a good question to ask. Is he trying to use the church to build his resume or reputation or seeking to serve the church to advance the honor of Christ in their heart? He's not self-willed. He's also, verse 7, not quick-tempered. 
Pray for this in your life as you hear me talk about it. Because this is what every Christian wants. Pastor or not. Male or female. Young or old. Not quick tempered. Oh, this is the beauty of meekness. This person is under the control of the sweet yoke of Jesus. Do you want your temper to be less quick? Do you want to be less easily offended? If I hand you a blank piece of paper, can you tell me very quickly ten things that a person does to irritate you? And would you be less quick to write down a hundred things that you see God doing in their life that are evidences of His grace? Your list of a hundred should come out a lot more quickly than your list of ten. Why are we so quick-tempered? What's going on in our heart? Well, if a man's quick-tempered, don't appoint him as a pastor. If he lashes out at people over the smallest offense, please, please. We don't, we don't want, I don't want to be pastored by that guy. But if you want to know what your idols are, if you want to know what a pastor's idols are, wrong things, sinful things, just take an inventory of what makes you angry quickest. You may not even know what your idols are until somebody puts their grubby hands on them. And when they touch your little pet idol, you're immediately incensed. That quick temper just comes. You can't chase it. It's already out of the gate. That's when you know what your idol is. When your fuse is short, you'll know what the object of your worship is. This man is putting that sin to death. He's also, verse 7, not addicted to wine. Clearly, this text does not forbid the use of alcohol. It forbids the abuse of alcohol. Many of us would be very wise never to touch a drop of alcohol the rest of our life because addiction has been part of our past. That's very wise. There's a lot of verses that would support what I just said. But you cannot lay that as an application on all Christians in all places at all times because of verses like this. Not addicted to wine. Luther said, I was thinking about Reformation Day. That was last Sunday. Um, How did you do the Reformation? Well, I taught the Bible, had a beer, and went to bed. The Word did all the work. It's not the use of alcohol, it's the abuse of alcohol that makes a man unqualified to be a pastor. Verse 7, he's also not pugnacious. This is the fourth not. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. What does that word mean? It means he's not a bully. He's not given to violence. And it's not physical violence usually. It's relational violence. Just putting people in their place. He's a conversation ender, not a conversation have-er. He stops people rather than engages with people. This eliminates, I think, you know, maybe up to half the pastors who post stuff on social media. I don't think they can be pastors. If they have a penchant for using Bible verses to support why it's okay for them to be a jerk. If you can be a jerk most of the time, you can't be a pastor. You're pugnacious. You're looking for a fight. If you're the kind of person who's more eager to show everybody else why they're wrong, rather 
than showing people the all-surpassing beauty of Christ, which is the primary way anybody's ever going to be changed into His image? You can't be a pastor. Do you sometimes have to show people when they're wrong? Yes. Go look at the previous book of the Bible. Read the rest of this book of the Bible. But that's not the pastor's primary calling. We're not to be known mainly for what we're against. We're mainly to be known for who we're for. Not pugnacious. Not fond of sordid gain. This is the fifth and final not in the series. Not fond of sordid gain. We don't talk like that, at least not commonly. I don't hear it a lot. What does that mean? It means he's not greedy. It's a positive quality of being generous. If he has anything, is he inclined to share it with others for their good if he can? If you're not generous, you can't be a pastor. If you're greedy, you can't be a pastor. But all of us should want the Christ-like quality of generosity. Who's the most generous person you've ever known? Jesus. This is a very Christ-like quality. Then comes the but. Verse 8. But hospitable. But loving what is good. But sensible. But just. But devout. But self-controlled. Not those things, but these things. Five negatives, six positives. Hospitality. You know what that means. But it's more than what we often think. Verse 8, when it says he must be hospitable, it's not only do people darken the door of his house. That should happen. It's more does he make you, if you're a Christian, feel at home on his turf. Where he's in charge of the dynamics, do you feel at home? Are you at rest? One commentary said this word means he's devoted to the welfare of others. It has very little to do with his house. How many times have you been in the pastor's house? Oh, he's not hospitable. It's more, is he devoted to your good? I'm literally trying to host you right now for the good of your soul. Loving what is good. Our hospitable Jesus loves what is good. Verse 8. This could be good things. This could be good men, good people. It's a Christ-like quality of loving righteousness. Jesus is the most like that. Hebrews 1.9 says He loves righteousness. With all the passion of His magnanimous heart, He loves what God loves. Does this man love what is good? Verse 8, He's also sensible. It's very very similar to self-controlled. Sensible means not unreasonable. He doesn't render judgment until he has an adequate grasp of the broader information. You know that our culture says sentences that are really unbiblically bad. I hope you know that. Like, silence is violence. Is it? If you see a viral video and you throw out a definitive assessment of what you know for a fact happened and how it should be adjudicated and judged, then you learn more information about said video and it changes the perspective you should have had and you don't repent, that's unsensible. Sensibility is a self-control aspect of not being unreasonable. 
Rather, it's waiting to have senses informed for an adequate assessment of a situation. We'll never have a full, perfect view of any situation, but we don't make impulsive assessments. It's not guilty till proven innocent. It's a sensibility. It's treating others the way you would want to be treated. Finally, just, devout, and self-controlled. Just, that's the Greek word for righteous in verse 8. It relates to sensibility. This man is convictionally committed to judging with God's judgment. I remember a pastor in California being told that his view on sexual ethics being opposed to same-sex marriage, being interviewed on the news spontaneously. He didn't know it was coming. Microphone shoved in his face. What do you think about the same-sex marriage? I love his response. I felt it deep in my bones. I want to be more like Christ. He said, first off, I really care what you think about me. I really want you to like me. I just think, I just care more about what God thinks about me. I think it's harmful to people, and I think it dishonors God. That's just. You judge with God's judgment. You don't really care what the culture says, though you want to be liked. You don't want people to hate you. You just care about what God thinks more than you care about what other people think. So that's just in verse 8. Devout is where it comes from, verse 8. This is a devotion to holiness. He, he believes what he says because he lives like it, whether he's a pastor or not. He doesn't get paid to say what he says. He actually loves Jesus. And so he talks about Jesus. And if you stop, if that man stops being a pastor, which is perfectly fine, he would still love Jesus just as much. His devotion to Jesus has zero to do with him being a pastor of a church. Verse 8, he's self-controlled. Do his passions own him or does he own them? Don't you want to be like this? Nobody's more like this than Jesus. The pastor's heart follows his head. The Bible informs his feelings. His feelings don't inform his Bible reading. He takes them all to Scripture, but He lets Scripture teach Him. He doesn't eisegete putting into the Bible what He feels. He exegetes pulling out of the Bible and talking to His feelings. He's self-controlled. So that's the main part of the passage. Those are the qualifications. Jesus' churches need pastors, number one. Churches, pastors need Jesus, number two. I said there were two parts to that, number two. The first is the pastor must be above reproach. And the second is he must be under authority. This is where I close. This is verse 9. So beautiful. Under authority. Verse 9, holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine... And refute those who contradict. Oh Lord, help us hear this verse. Holding fast to the faithful word. In accord with the teaching. So that. He's under the authority of God's word. Do you see it in verse 9? Holding fast to the faithful word. This is good 
doctrine coming from God's Word. He loves the Bible. The Bible's not a textbook for him to study so that he can do his presentations. The Bible's his life. It doesn't say preaching the Word faithfully. That's a good thing. But that's the fruit of what verse 9 says. Holding fast to the faithful Word. If a guy doesn't have a quiet time, he can't be a pastor. He doesn't practice his righteousness before men to be seen by them. God's doing a lot in the pastor's life that he never tells people about. Holding fast to the faithful word. That's God's word. He's under the authority of the word. But it also says not only under the authority of God's word, but also under the authority of good doctrine. How do you know he's holding fast to the word? Verse 9 says, which is in accordance with the teaching. Whatever the church has believed throughout the ages, that man believes. He's not inventing new heresies by repeating old ones. He's devoted to the teaching, the doctrine that's been once for all. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter. Jude verse 4, 1 through 4. The faith that's once for all been delivered to the saints. He studies doctrine. Because he wants to make sure that his faithful holding to the word accords with what the church has always believed. Good doctrine shapes this man. So he's both taught and he teaches. If he's not a student, he can't teach. If he like finished his studies, he can't be a pastor. It's constantly growing, constantly learning, constantly trying to mine out more of God's word. This is the way that works, which is in accord with the teaching, so that he can do two things. He's being taught, holding fast to the teaching, and he's teaching others. Do you see it? He's doing it two ways. He's teaching sound doctrine. True stuff. And he's refuting those who contradict. An elder must be able to do that. You may know this. I promise you I'm actually closing here. An elder must be able to do both of these. It's the only qualification that's not included in the list of deacon qualifications. All the things I've just said are to be true in all deacons' lives. Same qualifications. This is the one that's not in the deacon list. And by the way, Grace Church did not have deacons for our first 10 years. Not because we didn't think they were in the Bible, but because we weren't sure that all Christians are not one. The Bible repeatedly calls all Christians deacons. In fact, the Bible calls Jesus a deacon. So we just thought all Christians should have all these qualities and always be deaconing, serving. We do believe the Bible teaches there's an office of deacon, Philemon one, uh, Philippians 1, Titus. Go listen to those sermons. This qualification is the only one that's not also required of them. I would say all these qualifications are required of all Christians. This qualification is required of elders. Able to teach sound doctrine. Able to refute bad doctrine. That's the only extra one. So what he teaches should be manifestly derived from the Bible. And when people start saying nonsense that contradicts the Bible, 
and it starts disrupting the church. I don't have to go fight all the lies out in the world. I don't pastor the internet. Our elders pastor you. And when lies about God start infiltrating this congregation, it's the pastor's responsibility to say, that's not true. This is good doctrine. That's bad doctrine. This will grow you. That will kill you. Does he increasingly look like Christ? That's the very first question I asked you in the sermon. One year, two year, five year, ten years ago. Is he more like Christ today than he was then? And does he do God's people good with the Bible? Do other Christians that get around him just so happen all to be growing in their faith? If that's the case, Jesus gave them to be pastors of the church or he gives more of them to one church so that they can send them out to serve other churches. Just like we did a month ago with Matt Nash, who's now a pastor of another church. All Christians should desire all these things because they're beautiful Christ-like qualities. And I saved this statement for last because I believe it is so important. In the Bible, sometimes the last thing in a sentence is there for emphasis. Here's my last thing. I don't know what you think your pastors think about you. I want to try to put it in one sentence. We have an embarrassment of riches. There are so many men in this little church, in this little room, who are like what we just saw. I think at any elders meeting any year, we could easily recommend multiple men to serve as a pastor of this church. We have an embarrassment of riches. There are so many godly men in this church. Little boys, look around at the men in this church and try to become like them when you grow up. Because as far as the pastors of this church can tell, this church is full of men like this. What a blessing. What a gift. What a blessing. Do you know that there are many churches that don't have one guy, including the guy they pay and call pastor, who's like that? What a gift. Oh, that all of us would seek to grow in these very qualities. It's just normal Christianity. It's what it looks like for Christ to be in our life. We're so thankful for you. And we're trusting God's going to raise up more pastors to serve here or send elsewhere. Because on the island of Crete, Jesus was putting plural of them in every church. He's going to keep doing that till he comes back. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this church and for these pastors and for these brothers. What a gift to be in a congregation where... Men love Jesus unashamedly. And I pray for all the guys in this room who know that their life does not match the qualifications of Titus 1. And I ask that you would either save them, make them want these qualities, or bring them to repentance so that they start again 
pursuing these qualities, demonstrating that they are a Christian. Make us all more like Christ. Brothers, sisters, young, old, make us like Jesus so that He is always and only the centerpiece of this congregation. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.